When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Ladies and gentlemen, terrific to see you all here today in such numbers. Who would have thought that uh, on the question of moral philosophy we could get a packed hall just like that? Fantastic. And we're very, very pleased to welcome Sam Harris, who's just flown in from America, and Giles Fraser. I want to remind you that uh, one of the key aspects of Intelligence Squared debate generally, and this debate in particular, is the scope to change your mind and to be open to evidence. It's true of both Sam and Giles that they have both, at some stage in their lives, changed their mind from what you would have perhaps expected them to be. That's to say, Sam you may not know this, but was a Buddhist and Hindu meditator at one stage, not perhaps what you would expect now, although I'm sure he will be able to trace a linear development between his present position and those. Giles was a left-wing socialist who, on the basis of evidence that he saw, made some peace with the marketplace. Um, so, (laughs) So it's clear that they are capable of uh, changing their minds. And I'd be quite interested to see on a quick show of hands before we begin this interesting discussion today um, what your position is. Sam Harris's book, I'm just leaving aside the God question for the moment, but is revolutionary in the philosophical sense that it's a great repudiation of David Hume and his idea that you can make statements about fact on the one (laughs) side and you can make statements about value on the other, but there is no correspondence between them. And um, that is what one of the positions that Sam is keen to assault. Could you now please give a big hand to Sam, who's going to take off? Well, it's an honor to be here. I'm a, I'm a huge fan, actually, of Intelligence Squared, and, and it's an honor to to get a chance to speak to you in this context. Uh, and as um, we heard, uh, Giles and I are going to be uh, speaking together. Um, 
afterwards. And uh, you may know he, he wrote a quite blistering review of, of my book in The Guardian the other day, uh, where he accused me of, among other things, breathtaking hubris. Uh, now, strangely, I love this review, Giles, uh, although it now occurs to me that this could be a symptom of my breathtaking hubris. <laughs> Or jet lag, which I'm, I'm certainly suffering. But I, I, I want to encourage you, Giles, to not pull your punches in our discussion. And likewise, in the Q&A afterwards, if any of you feel that you have the, the knockdown argument against what I've said tonight, please don't leave the room just muttering it to yourself. Just get to the mic and, and let me hear it, because I, I really don't want to be wrong any longer than I need to be. Uh, so, now, as many of you know, I've spent the last few years publicly criticizing religion, and what you encounter when you do that are all the reasons why people think criticizing religion is a terrible thing to do. Uh, And it turns out there are not a hundred reasons to think this. There are really just three. Either you think that, that one or another religion is true, or you think religion in general is useful, or you think atheism is, is corrupting of morals or, uh, unpleasant uh, and a sign of intolerance, etc. And the interesting thing is that pe- people re- rarely defend the truth of religion. Even, even fundamentalists tend not to come forward with evidence for miracles or, or the confirmation of prophecy. That what everyone tends to lead with is this concern about the usefulness of religion and, and the failure of, of Uh, non-belief to provide the same utility. And the utility that everyone is worried about is this notion of of a a moral framework. That religion, it's imagined, is the the only context in which we can put forward a universal framework about morality. Uh, And this is what keeps religion, incidentally, in good standing among uh, even people who don't subscribe. Many secular people who are unwilling to criticize religion are unwilling to do it based on uh, all the good it, it seems to do for um, uh, in the in the domain of human values. Uh, now, people of faith are generally concerned that unless we have a, a robust sense of moral truth, unless we really feel that words like right and wrong and good and evil mean something, then humanity will just lose its way. And and I actually I share that concern. Uh, I'm worried about. The, the, a, a postmodern erosion of, of moral courage and moral clarity. And I'll, I'll tell you the moment where this problem was first seared onto my brain. I was at a, a, an academic conference uh, speaking, as I'll, I'll speak to you tonight, about the connection, as, as I see it, between well-being, human well-being, and morality. Uh, and I said, uh, as an example of a, um, a worldview that we can clearly recognize as being less than truly moral. I, I cited the, the sadism and, and misogyny of the Taliban. Uh, now, it turns out to, to, to denigrate the Taliban at a scientific meeting is actually to, to court controversy. Uh, and afterwards, another invited speaker came up to me and said, how could you ever say that from the point of view of science, we'll be able to say that, that the, the forced veiling of women is wrong? that forcing women to live in burqas is wrong. And I said, well, because the moment you recognize that right and wrong relate to questions of human flourishing, uh, it becomes obvious that, that uh, forcing 
half the population to live in cloth bags and beating them or killing them when they try to get out is not a good strategy for, for maximizing human flourishing and is therefore not good. Uh, and she said, but that's only your opinion. And I said, okay, well, let's make it simpler. Let's say we found a culture that was ritually blinding every third child, literally removing out the eyeballs of children. Would you then agree that we had found a culture that was not perfectly maximizing human well-being? And she said, it would depend on why they were doing it. So after my eyebrows returned from the back of my head, uh, I said, well, let's say they're doing it for religious reasons. Let's say they have a scripture which says every third should walk in darkness or some such nonsense. And she said, then you could never say that they were wrong. Now, you should know, I was talking to a, a, uh, a woman, uh, which makes it even more shocking to me, actually, but a woman who has a deep background in science and philosophy. She, she has since been appointed to the, the President's Council for Bioethics in the United States. She's one of 13 people advising President Obama on all of the ethical implications of progress in medicine and, and related science and technology. Uh, and she had just delivered a, a perfectly lucid lecture on the, the ethical implications of progress in neuroscience. She was especially concerned that we could be using fMRI-based lie detection on captured terrorists. And she, she viewed this as a really unconscionable violation of their cognitive liberty. So on the one hand, her, her moral scruples were so finely tuned as to recoil from the, the slightest perceived misstep in our war on terror and yet she was quite willing to forgive any culture that would remove the eyeballs of children in its religious rituals. And she was actually, to more relevantly, rather terrifyingly detached from the very real suffering of, of millions of women in Afghanistan at this moment. So I see this double standard as a problem. And strangely, it, this is precisely the sort of failure of common sense and, and basic moral wisdom that, that religious people worry about. Uh, I just I, I hope it's clear to you by the end of this hour that that uh, belief in God is not the solution to this problem, uh, and it is, in my view, another source of moral blindness. So, how do we find ourselves in this situation? How do we find ourselves with with religious dogmatists and the, the majority of secular uh, intellectuals agreeing about the limits of science? Uh, well. It is widely believed that we have these two quantities in this universe. We have facts on the one hand, and clearly science is the domain in which we can talk most rigorously about those. And then we have values on the other, and it's widely believed science uh, can say nothing about these. Uh, now, of course, everyone thinks science can help us get what we value, uh, but science can never tell us what we ought to value. The science can, can never weigh in on the most important questions in human life, like you know, what constitutes a good life, or how should we raise our children. Uh, it's thought, and this, this I think, is based on a, a, a misconstrual of the boundaries of science. It's thought that science, from the point of view of science, we look out at the universe, and we just see patterns of events. We just see one thing following the next. And there's no corner of the universe that declares certain of its events to be right or wrong or good or evil, except for ourselves, our, our minds like our own, make these declarations. We determine certain events to be better than others. But it seems that we're merely foisting our own preferences 
and desires and moral judgments onto a, a, a reality that, that is intrinsically value-free. And where do our notions of, of right and wrong and good and evil come from? They, they clearly are the product of evolution. They're the product of apish urges and social emotions that have been drummed into us over millions of years and then modulated by culture. So I'm, I'm now going to argue that this, this split between facts and values is an illusion. Uh, I think moral values are a certain kind of fact. They're facts about the well-being of conscious creatures. They're facts about the, the, the kinds of experiences this, this universe allows for. Now, in, in claiming that values reduce to the well-being of conscious creatures, I've introduced two concepts, consciousness and well-being. Let's start with consciousness. This is not an arbitrary starting point. Just imagine a universe devoid of consciousness. Imagine a universe devoid of the possibility of consciousness, a universe, let's say, entirely of rocks. There's no, clearly no happiness or suffering in this universe. There's no right or wrong. This is a value-free space. For, For changes in the universe to matter, they have to matter, at least potentially, to some conscious system. So I take that to be axiomatic, and I... I, I can't really see how that could be controversial. Uh, what about well-being? This link between values and the well-being of conscious creatures may seem controversial, but I, I, I'm going to argue that it shouldn't. Here's the, the, the only assumption you need to accept. Imagine a universe where every conscious creature suffers as much as it possibly can for as long as it can. I call this the worst possible misery for everyone. The worst possible misery for everyone is bad. If if the word bad is going to mean anything, surely it applies here. Now, if you think the worst possible misery for everyone isn't bad, or that it might have a silver lining, or there might be something worse, I don't know what you're talking about. And what is more, I'm reasonably sure you don't know what you're talking about either. (laughs) So I'm saying that the minimum standard of moral goodness is to avoid the worst possible misery for everyone. And the moment you admit this, the moment you admit that the worst possible misery for everyone is the worst case, you must admit that all other possible states of the universe are better. And then we have a continuum that opens up with the worst possible misery for everyone over here and all other constellations of experiences out here. And because the experience of conscious creatures depends in some way on the laws of nature, then there will be right and wrong answers about how to move, regarding how to move along this continuum. It'll be possible to think you're avoiding the worst possible misery for everyone and to fail to be wrong about it. So here is my argument for for locating moral truth in the context of science. Questions of right and wrong and good and evil depend upon minds. They depend upon the the possibility of experience. Minds are natural phenomena. They depend upon the laws of nature in some way. Morality and human values, therefore, can be understood through science because in talking about these things, we are, of necessity, talking about all the facts that determine the well-being of conscious creatures. In our case, we're talking about genetics and neurobiology and psychology and sociology and economics. 
Now, I, I view this space of all possible experience as a kind of moral landscape where the peaks correspond to the heights of well-being and the val- valleys correspond to the lowest depths of suffering. And there are a few things to notice about this. It, it's, it's quite possible that there are many peaks. There could be multiple maxima uh, in, in um, human experience. Say. There may be many different uh, but morally equivalent ways for human beings to thrive in this world. But there will be many more ways not to thrive. There will be many more ways to not be on a peak. It's clearly, there are clearly more ways to suffer unnecessarily, unnecessarily in this world than to be sublimely happy. Now, the Taliban are still my favorite example of a, of a community that is struggling mightily to build a society that's obviously less good than, than many others on offer. Uh, the literacy rate for women in Afghanistan is 12%, and their life expectancy is 44 years. Uh, it, they have, Afghanistan has nearly the highest infant mortality and maternal mortality in the world, and nearly the highest fertility. So it's one of the best places on earth to watch women and infants die. And their GDP is lower than the world average was in the year 1820. Now, it seems to me patently obvious that the, the, the optimal response to this dire situation, which is to say the most moral response, is not to throw battery acid in the face of little girls for the crime of learning to read. Now, I happen to think this ought is business is a, it's just a trick of language. Um, uh, Wittgenstein once said that, that philosophy is a, a battle against the bewitchment of our intelligence by means of language. And many people are, are mightily bewitched by words like ought and should and moral duty. Uh, and on my view, to ask whether we ought to avoid the worst possible misery for everyone is nonsensical. Okay, if we ought to do anything, if we should do anything, if we have a moral duty to do anything in this universe, it's to avoid the worst possible misery for everyone. Okay, there's, there's no notion of ought that reaches deeper than the imperative of avoiding the worst possible misery for everyone. Okay, we, 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 can't, we can't say, well, I would have avoided the worst possible misery for everyone, but I had different priorities. There's no space for those priorities, or so I would argue. Now, many people imagine on Hume's account that science is bound to merely be descriptive, and one, one person's values can, can only be opposed by another person's values, and all such values are on a par. Okay? But this isn't true. There, there are many ways for my values to be wrong. I mean, they can be wrong with respect to deeper values that I hold, or, or would hold if I were a deeper person. My, my, it's quite possible for me to value things that will cause me to be miserable and those I love to be miserable in this world. Okay, or, or will close the door to certain experiences that I would want if I were only intelligent or knowledgeable enough to want them. Okay, it's clearly possible for a person, or really all of us, to not know what we're missing in life. So, so things can be right or wrong or good or evil irrespective of a person's current values. Now, some of you might worry that this, this notion of well-being I'm using is a little too uh, elastic and uh, hasn't been tied down with any precision. Uh, how can a loose concept like this be the, the cash value of any uh, objective understanding of human values? Well, consider by analogy the notion of physical health 
Okay, physical health is a loose concept. It is, it is very difficult to define. Uh, it used to be that to be healthy, you could expect to live to the ripe old age of 40. Uh, we, our, our lifespan, our life expectancy has doubled in the last 150 years. What, what does health even mean to us? Well, it has something to do with not always vomiting, okay, not running a fever, not being in excruciating pain. But it is, it is genuinely difficult to, to define. And we can ask questions about health that may have no clear answer. Okay, how, how fast should a healthy person be able to run? Okay, that, that might not have a clear answer. That, that depends upon context. Um, what's more important, strength or flexibility? Well, there, there are trade-offs between the two. It depends upon context. And yet, all of, this, all of those trade-offs clearly are anchored to a discussion about human biology. This, these, the fact that there are trade-offs here in gray areas and ill-posed questions does not make the concept of health vacuous or merely subjective or purely the product of culture. And notice that no one is ever tempted to attack the, the philosophical foundations of medicine with worries like, well, who are you to say that, that not always vomiting is healthy? What if you meet a person who wants to vomit and, in fact, wants to vomit until he dies? Okay, how are you going to convince him that he's not as healthy as you are? The, the, the very notion of health has certain values built into it. Okay, this does not make the field of medicine unscientific. And in talking about morality and human values, I actually think we are talking about mental health and the health of societies. So I think the the analogy does run rather deep. Uh, Consider the the simplest statement of scientific fact. Water is two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. This is as value-free an utterance as human beings ever make. But what do we do when someone doubts the truth of this utterance? What if we meet someone who says, well, listen, that, that's just not how I choose to think about water. Okay. Someone could say, I'm a biblical chemist, and I read in Genesis 1 that God created water before he created light. So that, I take that to mean that he created water before he created the stars. So there would have been no stars to fuse hydrogen and helium into heavier elements like oxygen. And so there'd be no oxygen to put in the water. Okay. Or God created special oxygen. But I don't think he would do that because that would be biblically inelegant. What can we do in such a conversation? All we can do is appeal to values, and scientific values. And if the person doesn't share those values, the conversation is over. If someone doesn't value evidence, what evidence are you going to put forward to show that they should value it? If someone doesn't value logic, what logical argument are you going to make that will prove the value of logic? I think this split between facts and values just should look strange to you on its face. What are we really saying when we say that science can't be applied to questions of right and wrong and good and evil? We're saying that when we make every effort to get our personal biases out of the way, when we become most reliant on clear reasoning and honest observation, when intellectual honesty is at its zenith, well, then those efforts have no application whatsoever to the most important questions in human life. That's precisely the mood you cannot be in to answer the most important questions in human life. Okay, it would be very strange if that were so. Now, of course, there are, there are many good questions that people want to ask that uh, 
relate to how a science of morality could work in, in, in practice. I mean, how, how do you balance one person's well-being against the well-being of society? Okay. What do we do when certain values are in opposition to one another, certain obvious goods like freedom of speech versus the right to privacy, say? Uh, how can we evaluate the consequences of certain actions? Because the consequences seem to go on forever. So ask yourself, this recent tragedy uh, in Japan with, with the, the nuclear reactor, was that good or bad? Well, it certainly seems bad, but what if this causes us to be so much more scrupulous with nuclear materials than we would otherwise have been, we wind up saving millions and millions of lives down the line, a century hence. Okay. These, are, these, are all, these are good questions, okay. and we cannot help but grapple with these, with these questions in our efforts to build a viable global civilization based on shared values. But none of these are a retort to the, the case for moral truth that I'm making. Okay. And in every domain that truth exists, there are an infinite number of questions that we just can't answer. Now, so in closing, I just want to remind you why religion can't be the true moral wealth of the world. Uh, first, it's just the fact that our scriptures were written by people who, by, by virtue of their appearance in history, knew less about almost everything of substance that we care about. I mean, they, 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 they knew less about science. They knew less about what is now basic common sense. I mean, they, they knew nothing about the origin of life on this planet, the mind's relationship to the brain, the, the, the causes for illness. I mean, people were dying all around them, and unless they saw them get stabbed with a spear, they had no idea why. I mean, this is, this, we are in a fundamentally different world. Uh, there's nothing in Scripture about electricity or DNA or computation or viruses, or, and the list is long. And in moral terms, with few notable exceptions, most of these people were no wiser than your average Afghan warlord is today. Most had absolutely no notion, for instance, that slavery was unethical. I mean, Jesus and his apostles couldn't spell out that slavery was unethical. They couldn't really grasp that owning people and treating them like farm equipment was somehow problematic. Okay. So I want to suggest to you that there's no such thing, just, just as there is no such thing as Christian physics, though the Christians did invent physics, and no such thing as Muslim algebra, though the Muslims also invented algebra, there can be no such thing as Christian or Muslim morality. All we have is human conversation in, in which to frame the possibilities of human experience. And we, we can either have a conversation that's located in the first century, if you're a Christian, or the seventh century, if you're a Muslim, or in the 21st century with all of our intellectual tools at our disposal. And what remains for us to discover are simply the facts that relate to the possibility of, of uh, human flourishing in every domain of knowledge. We have to find some way to engineer a circumstance in which most of us, most of the time, lead deeply fulfilling lives. And it seems to me that the only tool we need for this job is open and honest inquiry. And faith, if it is ever right about anything in this sphere, is right by accident. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Sam. Uh, Giles Fraser will now uh, give a talk for five minutes or so, pondering on what he's just heard. I, I had um, Sam's book, which I enjoyed a great deal, side of my bed. At the same time, I suppose all of us have piles of books. And I had it at the at, but at the same time as this fantastic book by Tony Judd called Ill Fares the Land. I don't know if people have read it. It's out at the moment. And it's a great creed occur for the renewal of, of social democracy. And one of the uh, things that he's particularly keen on is that um, as a suspicion of isms is that, uh, is that the 20th century should teach us that um, communism and neoliberalism and the idea that somehow you're being cheered, they're, they're being cheered on by the universe is a very dangerous phenomenon. At the back of his book, it says this. If we have learned nothing else from the 20th century, we should at least have grasped that the more perfect the answer, the more terrifying its consequences. The more perfect the answer, the more terrifying its consequences. My problem with Sam's book is not the science. It's when the science becomes or feels like it's turned into some sort of ism, that it's become a perfect answer, that it's become an answer that's overstepped what science may be and wants to give us a complete explanation of the world. It's that complete and totalizing explanation of the world, which is one of the reasons that religion itself has been so wicked in the past. One of the things that I was going to say up here is that one of the advantages of being a Christian uh, and coming from a tradition where you have done so many bad things, where there is so much blood on your hands, that you develop a self-critical vigilance about one's own capacity for uh, intellectually supporting terrible things. Now, that self-critical vigilance is something that I don't find in your book, Sam, that idea of, of being aware that those big explanations, those explanations that are held with huge certainty, that really brook no dissent, those sort of explanations are scary and dangerous. And so I said about Sam's book that really I'm more scared of Sam's book than it is that I disagree with it. And one little bit in the book, in a footnote, which I'd like to draw out just to show you why I'm scared of it. You see, the thing is, the other reason that I think uh, Sam hasn't quite got the full extent of atheism is that I've got this suspicion that if there was proof that God existed and let's say God was a bastard, that Sam would believe, believe that there was such a thing as God. There is a God. I would be a believer. Let me say, if God exists and he's a bastard, I am not a believer. I'm atheist, even, in, even if there is good evidence that that super being exists. I would not sacrifice. I would not bow down. But Sam says something, well, almost that he would. Now, I think you know what I'm going to talk about. I'm talking about the Nozick example here. And that in the footnote, there's this very interesting uh, discussion of, of Nozick. And I'm just going to read to you a bit about uh, that Sam writes. Nozick asks if it would be ethical for our species to be sacrificed 
for the unimaginably vast happiness of some super beings. Super beings I'm going to read as another way of talking about God. Would it be ethical for our species to be sacrificed to the unimaginably vast happiness of some super beings? Provided that we take time to really imagine the details, which is not easy, I think the answer is clearly yes. Now, that's what worries me about this. What worries me about this sort of philosophy is that Sam is saying that if there was some super being and that our happiness and and that super being's happiness was made great by our sacrifice, then that's what should happen. I say no to all of that. I don't think Sam has learned properly the lessons of atheism, that there needs to be greater self-critical vigilance, why religion is wrong. I would not bow down to this super being, even if he or she existed. Sam, I don't think you're a good enough atheist. Okay, well, thank you very much to both our speakers. We're now, as I say, going to get them to quiz each other for the next few minutes and ask each other questions about their respective positions. And then we're going to throw it open to you lot. Just before, Giles, you asked a question, can I ask you a question, Sam? Sure. I'm wondering, should I respond to my apparent uh, love of human sacrifice? (laughs) (laughs) I think, yeah, I think yeah. you should probably go for the sacrifice okay. first. So that's okay. a good idea. Uh, well, that, that footnote, there's a reason why that's in an end note, uh, and it's not just to hide it from Giles. Uh, <laughs> it's that is just me following the, the philosophical implications of my view to the extreme. And this, is, this example from uh, Nozick is, is usually considered as a kind of reductio ad absurdum of the view that it's all about well-being or, or pleasant experience under any construal. Um, but what I maintain is that I'm certainly not saying that we would all enthusiastically offer ourselves to these beings, um, and nor am I even slightly suggesting that there's any reason to believe that such beings exist. Uh, but I'm just, uh, it seems to me to be true. Uh, and again, I, I say this is very difficult to imagine in detail, but it seems to me true, and, we, and our, our morality is tacitly predicated on this being true, that if there's something that stands in relation to us, the way we stand in relation to cockroaches, that something's more important than we are, uh, if we are more important than cockroaches. Uh, now, I just own the moral implications of that. I think we are much more important than cockroaches, and importance in this universe, value in this universe, has to scale with the possibilities of experience. Now, if we're wrong about cockroaches, say, if cockroaches have a far richer inner experience than we give them credit for, well, then we should modulate our ethical intuitions for them. If cockroaches suffer in ways that crickets never possibly could, well, then we should be more careful around cockroaches than crickets. And, and so too, it just scales up with our... I, mean, I think we have some very serviceable intuitions here about how neuronal complexity uh, underwrites uh, the complexity of, of inner life. But I, so it's not, I don't think anything hangs on this concession to the, the possibility of, of the greater importance of, of super beings. I, I don't think there's any reason to think that they exist.
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code SQUARED to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. I quite like to give, give an open question, really, a minute, because um, I quite like to know what you really think about philosophy, because you can come across as quite dismissive of, of philosophy right. in a great deal of... And, and I know on one level that's because you're writing a, more, a book for a more general audience and, and, and don't want to get bogged down in, you know, sort of petty papers and philosophical disputes and so right. forth. But you might also... There might be people who worry that you're writing a, a, a book of philosophy, mm. but very rarely do you engage with um, you know, that, those philosophical disputes that challenge your position. Yeah, well, that's, that's been controversial among philosophers. I, it, there are two reasons. One is I, I, genu- I genuinely think that many of these concepts and, and threads in the, in, in, uh, that we've had to follow over the centuries in, in, in the discussion of morality... Uh, I think they're they're confused and they generate unnecessary confusion. To break to, to start every discussion about moral truth with a discussion of consequentialism on the one hand and deontology on the other and Aristotle's virtue ethics on another, and then then we you know you have to talk about Kant. One, it's deadly boring to most people, and two, I think it's actually confusing. I think when you look as normally presented, it seems there's a, a stalemate between consequentialism and deontology. I don't think there is. I think deontologists are, are covert consequentialists, even when they say they're not. I mean, the, the only reason why Kant's categorical imperative makes any sense at all is because if it has good consequences, and if it had reliably bad consequences, uh, it would not count as, a, as an ethical maxim. But not getting involved in that, in, in the fight with the philosophers. Well, I have subsequently, okay. well, you, you know, to uh, nobody's pleasure. But you're not ducking a fight with the big boys and girls. Not a, well, not at all. Because I've, I've, subsequently, certainly not. And I'm aware of the literature. I've, you know, I, I have a background in philosophy, and, I, and it, to the consternation of many philosophers, I actually consider myself a philosopher. I mean, I, I, my, my, my PhD is in neuroscience, but. My interest in neuroscience has always been philosophical. I'm, I'm interested in the way in which our scientific understanding of the brain and of, of the world generally will of necessity change our view of ourselves, of our, of our subjectivity and, and of but what can we I, want. Can, can I ask you a question on that? Because I think some, some people might feel that they don't really want to disagree with much of what you say. They just wonder how far it actually cracks the moral problems that we actually do right. face. Right. One of which, a standard one, is what happens when the well-being of the tribe conflicts with right. the well-being of the individual, which it so often does. And um, I, don't, I can't quite see from anything you've written here how what you call science here actually 
enlightens us on that. And a, a coda to that question is, if tribal well-being is a good, which I assume, or societal well-being yeah, yeah. is a good, which I assume you take it to be, why wouldn't it vary depending upon the circumstances? Face, I mean, hunter-gatherer tribes, for mm -hmm. example, it may be, for the tribal well-being point of view, that actually killing girl children is promotes right, tribal right. well-being, promotes the chances of survival, and promotes... I don't know. It's very easy to yeah, hypothesize, yeah. and it may even be possible to actually specify examples of that. Yeah, Does well, anything yeah, that you yeah, yeah. tell us in your book identify and guide us as to where one should... You know, we're both, we're, we'll take all the well-being stuff as given. We're up, right. we, we share the thought that well-being is a good basis on which to look at this. But the trouble is, it's a pretty commodious category, and most of our moral dilemmas, right. it seems to me, right. tend to be a clash of well-beings rather than what you've presented, which is badness versus goodness. Right. Uh, well, that's a very good question. Uh, one thing I, I, I would want to flag up front is that most of the world hasn't conceded that, it, that our business in the moral sphere is to simply focus on well-being, or at least uh, uh, not to, um, to my can we, take, so, can, so, we can we take a quick show of hands here? Who would basically go along with the proposition in defiance of most of the world, if Sam is right, that moral well-being is the basis which we, we should be searching for for most of our... Human well-being. Of human well-being, yeah. Okay, so, so I'll, I'll tell you why I say that. What do we so, think, 50%? For instance, when you look at the kinds of moral concerns that, that really move the conversation, especially in America, but I'm sure this is true uh, here, the, the, the concerns of the Catholic Church. The, the Catholic Church is concerned about gay marriage. They're more concerned about preventing consenting adults who love each other from getting married than the rape of children or than genocide. Uh, they're more concerned about preventing contraception than any of those things, and they'll go preach the sinfulness of contraception in AIDS-ravaged areas in sub-Saharan Africa. So, so if you if, if you have a, if you if well-being is your concern, immediately you see these so-called moral positions as pseudo-moral positions, or in fact immoral positions. And what I'm arguing for is, is just admitting that well-being is the is the cash value of moral terms would change our, our conversation rather markedly. You, the, the Pope would have to say, listen, I'm, I'm against gay marriage because not my faith tells me it's an abomination. He would have to spell out some argument in terms of human well-being. have to say, well, when kids get adopted by these gay couples, they suffer all these ill effects. If you practice, if you, if you have a homosexual relationship, you have all of these psychological ramifications that, that should trouble us and society. And no one, ha no one feels the need to make that argument uh, because you can just make this faith claim. Uh, I, I, but, but I'm not even sure you're right about that. I mean, like it or not, they, Catholic, well, well, the, Catholic, the modern Catholic Church spends an awful lot of time well, trying to make precisely that argument. Well, if, if they make that argument in detail in terms of well-being, then at least they're talking moral talk. Then, then the question is, are they right? Is it plausible that we should be more concerned about condom use than... than uh, the rape of children, or genocide, say, or the spread of AIDS. Now, um, but I would point out to you that that's just where I come from, which is is about as blinkered by religion as the wilds of Afghanistan. Uh, you have even someone as smart and as apparently secular as as Barack Obama. When he's asked about gay marriage, he says, "Well, my faith tells me marriage is between a man and a woman." Full stop. 
there's no, no burden to have an ethical argument beyond that. Uh, but to answer your question, this, this tension between personal well-being and the well-being of, of the group exists in certain cases. I don't think, I think we oversell it. I think, I think we are so tied to the well-being. We're so deeply social and we're so dependent upon the happiness of others and, and, the, and, the, and the creativity of others and, the, and, the, and, and that others' projects get realized that I think the big moves, the big ethical moves are ones in which all boats rise with the same tide. But yes, there are situations in which we have a zero-sum contest and there's one piece of pie left and you want it and I want it and only one of us is going to get it. I think uh, our lives get increasingly good the more we become sensitive to the ways in which we can get out of zero-sum contests and collaborate with one another so as to, to uh, increase uh, well-being for, for everyone. And that's, that's uh, not an accident. I, I agree with a lot of that. Um, can I just pick you up on this, this uh, very interesting that you just talked about that human beings as social animals, which huh? I completely agree with. Um, one of the things that uh, I, I didn't agree with in your book is, um, is the way in which you, you te- your anthropology, really, um, which is, you know, at the beginning you say, um, morality really questions about the well-being of conscious creatures. Now, I've done the well-being bit, but the conscious creatures bit... And it, it worried me that uh, you define what human being is in this particular, and it seemed to me a rather narrow way, we're just consciousness, as it were. Right. And then in defining it that way, you make life quite easy for yourself as to what the, of, of what right and wrong looks like and how you might measure it. Now, lots of people start in other places when they're defining what it is to be a human being, not just something that could be a brain in a vat, but we are social creatures, language-using creatures. We're people that have bodies that move around the world and interact with people and all this sort of stuff. And so if you start with... I just wanted you to start with a more complex anthropology. I wanted to start with... This isn't about religion. It's just the way in which Shakespeare might describe what it is to be a human being, rich and diverse and complicated. And it's that complexity which leads on to acknowledgement of moral complexity. Now, my anxiety about the book is it started not with human complexity, but with a real simplicity, consciousness, and then managed to go and make the moral questions very easy because you'd started with, uh, for me, an attenuated view of what it is to be a human being. Right, so right. if you understand, that's my anxiety. So you... Well, I think it's, it's the essence of, of there being anything at all to care about and anyone to care. It's just it's the, either the lights are on or they're not in some sense. And... My use of the phrase conscious creatures is not to diminish the color of humanity. It's to extend moral concern to any other creature that could enjoy consciousness to the degree that it can. So if we tomorrow build computers that we have every reason to believe are conscious, all of a sudden we've got ethical, uh, an ethical connection to them, and we can make them suffer, and we can terrorize them in ways that uh, we, we shouldn't want to do. Um, and it's Completely intelligible. It's an intelligible prospect that we could build a computer that could suffer more than any human being or animal ever could. That would be a bad thing to do, in my, in my, in my view. So consciousness is. But then, if you discovered, oh, sorry, we had that wrong. Turns out that computer is not conscious. Then all the ethical concern goes away. It's just a, a hunk of metal. Um, again, on my view. But it, no, there's no. I'm not diminishing the the multifariousness of 
of uh, human experience. And, and to speak to your, your opening concern, this, the, the idea that science is an ism, that is kind of this all... Well, not necessarily an ism, but I, I was more saying your science. Yeah, no, but my science... Can I just, uh, with respect to the multifariousness, sure. multifariousness of human experience, there it all is. Yeah. And um, so it would, I think we'll interrupt this at least momentarily. It might get back to the... Sure. To, uh, to, to take some, any questions that, that you might have, starting with this gentleman in the check shirt there. Um, one question. What is the scientifically demonstrable fact that tells me I ought to value human well-being? That is a, in, in articulating that concern, uh, as I tried to show in my, in my opening, you have put the bar at a level that no other branch of science can clear. So if you think that a, a science of morality must meet an, an epistemological test that physics and chemistry and medicine can't meet, then that's a, a double standard that I think is intellectually unjustified and unsustainable. Um, and I see no reason to do that. Uh, in fact, I think the the value of avoiding the worst possible misery for everyone, which is, the, the, again, I think the only assumption I need you to grant for me to have this space of, of, of uh, possible experience open up, is more fundamental than the value of understanding the universe, than the value of being logical. In fact, I, mean, it's, I, I think it's actually, if you're going to give me a choice between knowing a, a certain fact in physics and plunging into the worst possible misery for everyone, I, I'm going to say, well, yeah, there's certain physical facts we don't, it's rational to not to want to know. Um, and uh, so, uh, while, I, while I can't give you, I cannot give you a scientific reason to want to avoid the worst possible misery for everyone, once you, once you grant the reasonableness of that, which again, I think is even more reasonable than reason itself, uh, then science, a scientific understanding of, of human consciousness would give you subsidiary values. We could ask the question, well, how important is compassion in human life, and how can we best teach children to be compassionate? Uh, that's, a, that's a question about cognitive neuroscience. I mean, that's, that, is, that, is, that is the more you know about the brain basis of compassion and the genes that underwrite uh, a proclivity to it and the, and the, and the cultural institutions that manufacture it, then you're, then you're talking the game of scientific detail. Again, telling you, you know, if it's a trade-off between compassion and bureaucratic efficiency, how, what's the, how do we balance those two things? Well, there is a right answer. It's fantastically complex, but there is going to be a right answer or a, a, a number of right answers and many, many wrong answers. Okay, we've got one gentleman over there. Hi. Um, if we were to be able to get everyone to agree that uh, well-being is is the key here. It, is it possible that there is then space for moral relativism, in that someone could just be intending to increase male, well-being but failing very badly? But as long as their intentions were good, they are not. You know, you couldn't condemn them morally. Well, actually, I thought you were going to ask something slightly different, which which seems relevant there. It, it's, it could seem that there's a space of relativism that opens up if you grant that well-being is so multifaceted and we have so many different proclivities that some people just love music so much more than I love music that 
you know, being a musician is predicated on, their well-being is predicated on that, where someone else is really into sports. Say, you know, so how are we ever going to balance music versus sports in this space? Now, um, th- those are the kinds of, of things that we may never totally sort out. They're, they're clearly answers to, I mean, the, the reason why someone likes music, that's a fact about their brain. I mean, that's a, there's, there's a, I mean, I'm very unmusical. Um, I, I'm aware of not knowing what I'm missing. I mean, I, I have a sense of what I'm missing, and I'm, I sense that it's good. Uh, it's, it would be possible for me to be self-deceived and think, well, everyone's just faking. I mean, they, they just don't really like this stuff. Um, uh, and, and what I'm arguing in my book is that there are many people walking around with that kind of, of, of moral attitude, and they're wrong, and we can say they're wrong. Um, because there really is something to music, and you need a certain genome and brain to appreciate it. Um, the interesting piece is that if you imagine being able to change the human brain, which in, at some point is coming, uh, very likely, the question, then you can ask the question, is it good to change the human brain in certain ways? And that standard of goodness has to float free of any one, one individual's sense of what's good. That is, uh, we ha- you have to find a space of right answers beyond what we all happen to agree on uh, and that's why I think my moral landscape analogy is useful because I think there, there are places on this landscape of possible experience which, which are, could be higher than, than, in terms of well-being than anything we are likely to find. You have to have a certain kind of mind to find those spaces, and we may never know about them. That's an intelligible proposition from my point of view, and that is a, an objective claim about the possible subjective states of conscious creatures. But picking up here, I, I'm not entirely sure that but you, but that's not relativism. Relativism would be there's no right an, there's no right answers. It's just but all you have are, are, are mutually different opinions, which you could never one can never really trump another. And there's no truth. But if your intention, value. I think the questioner was saying, if your intention is to achieve well-being, right. own, let's take the example of capital punishment, for example. Your intention is to say, listen. Let's have capital punishment. It will achieve well-being. There will be less foul murders committed because people will be deterred. And your, your intention equally to achieve well-being is saying this is a hideous, barbaric practice inherited right. from our ancestors. It does rather give rise to some Giles Fraserist concerns about who's then... Are we then going to get a scientist, a sort of utilitarian scientist, to come along and adjudicate right, which right. one of these well-being competitors is actually the one that has the higher peak on the landscape? Yeah. Well, it, well there is this Orwellian concern about guys in white lab coats coming forward uh, as the morality police. Uh, I don't understand it given how we feel about... I mean, we don't feel that about medicine. When, 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 when medicine really has some information to give us, like guys, you really want to hear this. This thing is going to kill your children. We are desperate for the information. We're not standing back thinking, well, this is a little something Orwellian about this, this, the, the, the uncompromising stance of medicine on this subject. Um, and if, 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 if psychology came forward with a really robust and deep understanding of how to raise happier children, what parent isn't going to want to know it? Uh, and that's a, that, that, that immediately intrudes on the space of morality. And I, I just realized that I forgot to answer the core of your very interesting question about what, what do we make of the fact that there are certain contexts in which barbaric actions may be necessary for survival or, or uh, in fact, viewed as morally good. 
it's something I actually do discuss in my book. If you imagine, I mean, you imagine <coughs> the landscape could be such that you might have to descend in order to reach a higher place. And, and there's a, an economist, a very interesting economist, Samuel Bowles, who's looked at altruism in, in evolutionary landscapes and argued somewhat persuasively that altruism was only possible in evolutionary terms. Uh, it could only have evolved in, in social primates like ourselves in a context of rather incessant outgroup tribal violence. Now, if that's true, let's, let's just stipulate that that's true, and let's stipulate that altruism is one of the most important moral attitudes uh, we're, we're ever going to get and is the thing that was, is going to take us higher on the moral landscape, well then, okay, it may have been true that, um, that 500,000 years ago we really did have to descend into some trough of internecine horror in order to climb up towards civilization. I don't know if that's true, but it, 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 it's possible. Uh, and that's Okay, um, now we're well, running out of time, and I know there's a lot of people want to ask more questions. Gentleman in the white shirt in the middle there. Uh, Sam, thanks for being here. Um, just touching on something you said in the previous debate and uh, something you picked up on today. You said that uh, you don't think that a computer will ever be able to, a supercomputer will ever be able to be consulted about moral questions. Now, we're at the limits of our own intuitions about what we can logically discern about the world, but supposing we were to construct a computer that is much more advanced than ourselves, uh, could it not just simply have the processing power and parallelism programmed into it to solve all the questions we find so intuitively uh, Obviating and uh, confusing. Yeah. Oh, in principle, yes. I, I don't, for a moment, doubt that we could uh, engineer our better judgment into a computer, an intelligent computer that then could improve upon. I mean, it just it could, it could just it could so much of our of our uh, so many of our moral failures are the result of self deception born of just not paying attention to everything or forgetting morally salient details in a self-serving way. And we could, we could create a system that made that impossible. Now, the question is, is that a, is that a good thing or not? It, it's good based on what the consequences. Maybe there's certain kinds of self-deception that, that actually are important in terms of safeguarding well-being. I, mean, I happen to be, for the most part, uh, against self-deception. Uh, but it's... it's um, no, I, I don't see any, any reason why computer couldn't be wiser than we are. It just it doesn't seem realistic in any reasonable time. But there's, a, there's a very uh, uh, influential uh, philosophical thought experiment that's now been taken into the psychology labs and tested, and it's really the kind of the, the, the benchmark moral reasoning test at this moment. Um, you're asked to imagine a trolley coming down the track, a runaway trolley coming down the tracks. There are five workmen working on the tracks that will be killed if you do nothing, but you stand at a switch and you can divert the trolley onto another track where there's only one workman who will be killed if you divert it. When you ask people whether they should do this, something like 90, 95% of people say, yes, you, 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 you have to throw that switch. In fact, you'd be a moral monster not to throw the switch. You're, you're saving a net four lives. But if you pose the problem in terms of you're now standing on a footbridge over the track and you can... You, there's a suitably large person beside you, and you can push him onto the track, into the path of the uncom- oncoming trolley, killing him, obviously, but saving the five. It seems actuarially the same scenario, and yet now 90, 95% of people say you would be a monster to push that man. 
Now, the morally salient difference, obviously, is the up-close-and-personal pushing of a person's body. People imagine touching a person. People imagine his resistance, etc., as opposed to the impersonal act of, of flipping a switch. Now, the first thing to say is, I think the, the question is somewhat ill-posed. We have an intuitive physics, and many of us have burned a lot of fuel when hearing the problem, wondering whether the fat man is really going to stop the trolley. Uh, <laughs> But even if you, even if you design a, a scenario where that disappears, um, what you're left with is the sense that uh, the situations aren't actually identical because it just may be that pushing someone up close and personal affects you uh, in a way that flipping a switch doesn't, and there's no way to correct for that effect, say. Um, and the, the, the converse of this is, is actually... A, a, hugely consequential in the way we wage war. I mean, we now wage war in such a way as it's all just flipping switches. You know, you can be thousands of miles away from the people you're annihilating, and that allows us to do things which we probably couldn't do up close and personal, or it would take a different kind of person to do it. And, and I mean, this is an example I use, if not in that book, in one of my books. I, I mean, when you hear that your grandfather flew bombing missions over Dresden... That's one thing. When you hear that your grandfather killed a woman and her five children with a shovel, that's a very different understanding of your grandfather, and yet he probably killed more women and children Shit. flying bombing missions. But we have a sense that it would take a different person to do that. The experience of having done it would be different. Um, and all of that's relevant. I mean, all of that falls into the consequential calculus, and, that, and this is why consequentialism is normally posed in terms of body count doesn't capture what I mean by... Um, the moral landscape. Well, listen, on that fascinating note, we've now reached 8.30. I see that people are beginning to feel they need to go, and you're not going to have time to buy Sam's book if I don't okay. stop it now. Those of you who have to go now, you can always get it also at your local bookshop or download it or from Amazon if you're on Kindle or just buy it through Amazon. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this evening. Can we have a very big hand for both of us? Thank you very much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.